Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, more fallout from COVID-19 and how this coronavirus is changing life for Canadians. Ontario declares a state of emergency, but not a complete province shutdown. We handle all the angles, all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. This is a rapidly changing story and uh, the numbers and such are quite fluid. Let's bring in Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, Chief Medical Officer, Public Health, City of Hamilton. And she is with us now. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. I'm sure you're extremely busy. Give us a bit of a Hamilton update here, uh, where we are with cases and how those people are doing. So we have 15 confirmed cases as of this morning, so we are continuing to see increases in numbers. We do have evidence with one that came in overnight of uh, community transmission now here in Hamilton. So what that means is we're not able to connect with the investigations that we've done so far. We're not able to see that this person is connected back to travel. Now, by far, most of the cases still continue to be connected to travel, but this is that point at which, you know, we do become concerned that there are some more cases here than we're actually seeing and that there may be transmission going on from person to person. The risk overall remains you know, unlikely in terms of an individual getting COVID, but we definitely want to make sure we are taking steps to prevent spread. So that piece about social distancing, you heard the Premier uh, today talk about it and the measures that have been taken around bars, restaurants, nightclubs, private schools, daycares, uh, community gatherings to order them to stop and not go on. That is just such an important part of this story is about the message of social distancing. What we're trying to do is prevent what we call the chain of transmission. And it's about protecting each of us ourselves, but it's also about protecting our families, our neighbours, and protecting those in our community that are vulnerable, people who are older than 70, people who are ill, who are more likely to have the severe complications that can come with this virus. Uh, How concerned are you because of community spread? And again, just to uh, uh, illustrate the difference, community spread meaning getting you you received it from somebody in the community as opposed to somebody who traveled somewhere and and brought it in. How does that change the picture? Does, does, Does that concern you more that it is spread now in the community? It does, because, you know, what we're trying to do with this virus, we did, we did think that it was ultimately going to spread at some level. We were trying our darndest across the globe and across uh, Canada to get it contained, as we were able to do with SARS, but uh, we're concerned that it would begin to spread. And essentially, we're trying to protect healthcare system resources and protect the people who are most vulnerable, reduce the overall number of cases, um, both so just people don't get sick, but also to make sure we preserve our healthcare system resources for those who are most vulnerable, who may need a ventilator, who may need to be in the ICU, who may need to be in the hospital um, because of complications from this. So this is, we're quite concerned that we see the community transmission and that's why they've stepped up the measures. That's why the premiers declared an emergency. That is why we're stepping up the measures to ensure that the people can as much as possible be supported in social distancing. We're not shutting down the province as the province said, but we are asking people to be very mindful as they go about their day-to-day, you know, as much as possible, stay about home, you know, don't make any unnecessary trips in the community, make sure you're thinking about those people who are vulnerable because we really want them to self-isolate at home and get some support so they can stay there, to have groceries brought to them, to have um, medications if they need them brought to them. We've seen, seen some really great things in the healthcare world already in terms of virtual visits and those sorts of things going on. We're seeing it across businesses where we're seeing, you know, support for people people to work from home, to do virtual meetings, to have social distancing at work so that uh, people who do need to uh, continue to be in the workplace can uh, stay as healthy as they can. Uh, You were touching on spreading in the community. I guess touching is a bad choice of words when I think about it here. Um, uh, Do we know anything about that case involving the the spread within the community, uh, location? Um, Is that something the public should be concerned about? 
No, really when we're at this point where we've seen it, uh, essentially what it's telling us, it's really a, a marker for it happening in the community. So it's not a particular piece of the community or a particular place. We have seen, you know, that we've seen a transmission amongst family members, for example, and now we've seen transmission that's not amongst family members or with somebody they specifically knew about. So it's what it really is, is a marker for all of us that no matter where you are, these are the message, the, the things you need to put in practice in terms of this social distancing. Stay six feet apart, whether you're out shopping, shop at off-peak hours, all those sorts of things. Uh, what are your concerns for the city moving forward on this? I mean, it looks like we're going to get it. We're going to see a, a few more cases before this peaks out in any way. What are your concerns moving forward from a city standpoint? So it is primarily to blunt that curve or flatten the curve that's uh, certainly been out there on memes, on social media and various things. And it's to make sure that people are following those those methods, that they are doing that social distancing, that they're getting support in order to do that, whether it's an elderly person who needs somebody to go out with and uh, help them with their shopping, or it's a worker who's, you know, getting support from their employer to not have meetings in their workplace, to not... Uh, to have space where they can spread out and those sorts of things. We do um, very much are concerned about what might happen as we move forward. This is why reducing the number of cases so we can preserve healthcare resources for those people who are both uh, happen to become very ill with COVID. And we're, we're really looking at a small proportion of the overall cases. By and large, this is a mild disease. It's just with it happening in the numbers we've seen elsewhere in first China and then in Europe, you know, with that all happening at once, it makes it difficult for the healthcare system to keep up. And we want people, you know, people are going to have other illnesses and and things happen, whether it's car accidents or it's heart attacks, mm. that we want to make sure those resources are there for them too. The last piece, you know, really is about, you know, figuring out how we live through this piece and this next stage that could go on for a couple of weeks. It might go on a little longer. Depends on what we see in terms of spread and what we're able to do in terms of containment. And so, you know, to think about how do we continue to operate? It's not shut down, as the Premier said. It's not that. How do we continue to do what we need to do to, um, you know, for example, with restaurants today, my inspectors are out, my colleagues are out um, visiting those restaurants to make sure that, that the uh, they are abiding by the Premier's order today. Right. But at the same time, they're encouraging them to do takeout, to do um, service delivery, because having food in our community is very important and having our businesses supported is also very important from an economic perspective. A lot are being uh, thrown by social distancing and, you know, a meter apart, what have you. Uh, but for example, this is March break. Kids are home for three weeks. Uh, if they played with friends that they were playing for, uh, playing with before all of this started, are they still safe if they haven't traveled anywhere? Uh, wh- wh- what do you have? What advice do you have for parents who are trying to manage this through a March break scenario? Uh, uh, can 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 kids play together if they've if no one's sick, if everybody's healthy? No, we're asking that they don't. Um, we are asking that they don't arrange play dates and those sorts of things because you know that's what this community spread piece means. Is right. that although we um, we were just seeing it amongst travelers, we're no longer seeing that now. And so, absolutely within the family to uh, within your immediately immediate family to do things like game nights and pick up your favorite movies yep. and to go outside. You can absolutely go for a walk, go for a hike. There's wonderful places you can go. Um, so all of those things are things you can do, but we are asking that um, people not come together. I know it's just, you know, with two kids of my own, I know it's very mm-hmm. challenging um, at this, when you're being asked these sorts of things, but it is very important for our own health, for your family's health, and for the health of those that are vulnerable in our community. What do you say to those that might be feeling a little anxious about all of this? Sure, that's absolutely understandable. And, and you know, for me, that's that's one of the first things is to realize that what people are feeling about uh, this situation, it, it's completely understandable. Um, at the same time, I think what's really important to remember is for most of this, uh, for most of us, this is a mild disease by and large. For 80% of us, you know, it's, it's not uh, a difficult thing. For 17%, roughly, we're saying, um, it could be more severe. You may need to uh, be hospitalized or or need some, you know, some extra care. And then for a small percentage of us, and most particularly those with chronic diseases or people who are over 70, um, they may need to be uh, in an intensive care unit and, uh, um, and ventilated and may go on to, there is a small portion that will go on to die. And so we have to realize that for most of us, it's not going to be um, that difficult thing, a thing that, 
you know, what I'd really try to look at in these situations is say, okay, there's things I can't control and there's nothing I can do about that. But what are the things I can control? I can control whether or not I go to go for a walk today. And that's so important for all of us to go out and get exercise. I can control what I'm going to eat today. I can control what I'm going to do today and what can I make of today through my work? What can I make of today with my family? And so I think that's really important to do. Extraordinary times. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson has been with us, Chief Medical Officer, Public of Health, City of Hamilton. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. I know you're busy. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Scott. Uh, Daryl Cully is here, President of Emergency Management Training Incorporated. Daryl, thank you for taking the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. So what happens when a state of emergency is called? What does that mean? It gives the government the additional ability to access funds. Um, outside of the, the traditional budget system, as well as uh, to make decisions regarding everything from, you know, cancelling groups to uh, closing restaurants. So it gives them that authority which they would not normally have. So your thoughts on what has been declared today? I need to applaud the, the provincial government for these decisions. I think they're, um, they're in the right direction. They uh, certainly are uh, going to offer enhanced ability to uh, to reduce the spread of uh, COVID-19. Uh, are you surprised that we aren't seeing more provinces do this, or should the federal government be enacting this across the nation? Uh, the federal government's been a little slow um, with their, uh, their actions, particularly uh, travel restrictions just coming out this week. Um, just in my personal opinion, uh, I think we will see other provinces uh, once they take a look at what Ontario is doing, uh, following through, particularly those that are are um, more impacted. Um, this is this is really a, a concern that that needs to be controlled. Uh, what advice? What advice, Daryl, do you have for the average family who's out there wondering what to do, how to prepare? Well, there's with all the, the news and attention, there's a lot of anxiety building up. So I think the first thing is take a deep breath. Um, you know, this, this is not going to impact water. It's not going to impact food chain. It's not impacting, uh, you know, toilet paper. Um, but what it will do is it will impact the health of those who have medical conditions, diabetes, uh, respiratory, chronic respiratory diseases, cardiovascular disease, um, plus the elderly. Uh, so they, we're all taking these precautions to prevent it from spreading to those who are most vulnerable. All right, Daryl Cully has been with us, President of Emergency Management and Training Incorporated. Daryl, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great afternoon. All right, you take care. Let's bring in Dr. Katie Kamkar, psychologist with CAMH, and she is with us now. Katie, are you there? Thanks for the time. Thank you so much. So talk about how this may, you know, we heard uh, Daryl Cully uh, with emergency management talking about some of the anxiety that people can be feeling. Uh, We're certainly talking about health and staying healthy and social distancing and all, but talk about the mental health aspect of all of this. Yes, it's always very important to, in a state of emergency, uh, to always discuss uh, mental health because we do know that health is health, whether it's mental health or physical health. It's a very normal right now to experience um, an increasing anxiety and the worries given the sudden changes in our daily life and structure and routine and obviously all the uncertainty going on. And we do know that um, when... Uh, anxiety goes up whenever the brain perceives any threat or danger and the, the flight and fight response or this inbuilt alarm system that we all have becomes activated. So these are all very normal reactions that we all experience. However, we also know that it is a functional anxiety, uh, but on the continuum, it can quickly escalate and the anxiety can then subsequently become kind of very excessive to the point of very dis- disabling and dysfunctional. So that's the one that we really want to work on and to better manage. Uh, advice for those who are feeling the anxiety, who are feeling the isolation perhaps now. So I would definitely want to normalize a certain level of anxiety and worry So we, because we also do not want to develop fear of the fear. So it's very much 
normalizing the reaction, but it also reminding self that, yes, we do need to take it one day at a time, that, um, yes, it's always difficult to experience a sudden change in our structure and routine, but it also might mean that we can explore maybe newer projects, the newer routine and structure, and in a different location. And yes, in this case, we do know it is likely uh, to be at home. But it's also a time now to certainly we can connect with others and the use of technology. We have FaceTime, there are videos, a um, variety of ways that um, we can still communicate um, to ensure that we have the proper support and that we do not feel alone. It is true that on the one hand, um, there is a sense of feeling alone, sense of we feel isolated. But on the other hand, we also know that it's the case for all of us. And so on the other hand, we're also not alone because everyone is kind of within the same boat. And also reminding self that, yes, this is a difficult time, but it's also temporary and hopefully we will be able to uh, uh, move forward. But really at this time is I need to take it one day at a time. Um, if we need to stay at home, um, it's around self-care always, healthy diet or exercise we can do at home. Uh, there are some videos. There are, again, newer projects that we never thought about or we thought about where we never had the chance to explore before because we were busy or distracted. Now might be a good time to explore uh, those at home as well. It could be, you know, we hear sometimes of online cooking or online training and classes mm. and so on. Um, but also it's around uh, creating a boundaries between, uh, yes, we do need to stay up to date in regards to, uh, you know, the news and the conversations and everything going on. But and also around that, yes, we also need to set times to have conversations about other things and also keeping the positives and uh uh, showing gratitude for our positives every single day. You bring up a valid point too, uh, Katie, in the sense that we have to keep informed, we have to be aware of what's going on, but you don't want to keep this stuff on all day, where it's just, you know, one thing after another, breaking news alert after breaking news alert, and, you know, keep it in perspective, but then get away from it. You're absolutely right about that. And, um, and I like what you said, keeping it into perspective, right? And, and it's different for everyone. We all have our boundaries. And also, there are within, there's a within individual difference as well. So between individual differences, but it's also within, uh, difference as well. So our boundaries, our needs, our tolerance level will change throughout the day and also every day as well. So how can we put this into perspective? So it could be, yes, in the morning, I want to watch daily news. Then after that, I want to focus on, other matters, it could be work, other projects, and communicating with others, but it could be about other subject matters. Then again, it could be, again, quick update again. But and also, um, uh, practicing proper sleep hygiene is important. So we all know about two, three hours to really trying to soothe them uh, prior to bedtime. So again, everyone is going to be different, anxiety level, tolerance level. So deciding on what time really uh, to cut down on anything that could be anxiety provoking might also be a good idea as well. But again, self-kindness, compassion to self, compassion to others. We are all in this together. We will make it through together. Very important reminder. It's odd, isn't it, how, and, and you know, like, obviously enough, this is restricting people. This is, you know, where, where you once had the freedom not to even think about this stuff, now you have to think twice about it. Um, but still, in the end, as, as world events goes, this is still not the most extreme we have seen, certainly involving uh, this virus. It's odd how, once we're told we can't do something or we can't have something, how we want it more. You know, I like that you emphasize that, right? Because there's just so much, um, a lot of great studies, social psychology studies around that, right? That whenever we feel that there is a restriction, restriction, we're not able to do that somehow the brain tunes into more into it. Um, and so again, here it's really around that, yes, there are certain things that daily routine and structure we are not able to, but at the same time, they just so much still within our own home that we can do. And certainly the technology. It is true that before, let's say, decades ago, if we were home, not able to go out, there wasn't much technology. So you really feel isolated. Here, in the comfort of your own home, the technology connects you to the world. 
So yes, there is isolation. At the same time, there is no isolation. And at the same time, because we know we're all in the same situation, all in the same boat, that hopefully can also provide a reassurance that, yes, I'm alone, but at the same time, I'm not alone. I will be okay. We will be okay. And when you think about it, like you said with technology, it's a pretty good generation to be alone in because it's a lot different than it would have been 20 years ago. Totally. I agree with you. Absolutely. Totally different meaning, right? All right, Dr. Katie, uh, any, any last advice for any of those out there that are feeling like this is a little bit too much to bear? Any last advice? I, I think that, again, um, it's very much the self-kindness, self-care, compassion to self, but then also uh, reaching out to others, being kind with one another. This is the time that we all need to regroup. We're all in this together, and we all know as a team, it is best that we can build our resiliency and move forward. How odd is it we're all going through this experience after previously, when you think about it, all the divisiveness in the world, maybe this will unite us all. I agree with you, and that, I think that will be a wonderful way to, um, uh, to to really end this. I agree with you. Dr. Katie Kamkar has been with us, psychologist with CAMH. Uh, Katie, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. All right, you take care, and uh, we'll chat again. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Pretty safe to say uh, this is COVID-19 all uh, day, all the time. That's what we're talking about, uh, simply because there are so many different angles to this story. And uh, this story is just changing uh, rapidly, so, so, so quickly. Here is an excerpt of uh, what the Prime Minister had to say about working together. Earlier today, the province of Ontario announced a provincial state of emergency. At the federal level, we've been coordinating with them and continue to do so. Ontario is taking the right steps to protect people and the healthcare system. And today's announcement is an example of what we're seeing across the country. National coordination and local action that makes sense for the circumstances on the ground. And I want you to know, Canada is here for you. And in regard to stimulus, uh, obviously when uh, these sorts of things happen and uh, the world comes uh, grinds to a halt, uh, how do we pay for all of this? I have directed the House Leader to engage with his counterparts to discuss a brief return of the House of Commons so that we can bring in emergency economic measures. There are economic pieces that will need quick passage through the House in order to support Canadians. We are also examining the Emergency Measures Act to see if it is necessary or if there are other ways that will enable us to take the actions needed to protect people. And in regard to uh, the Emergency Measures Act, here's more from the Prime Minister. I have directed the House Leader to engage with his counterparts to discuss a brief return of the House of Commons so that we can bring in emergency economic measures. There are economic pieces that will need quick passage through the House in order to support Canadians. All right, uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, is with us now. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time. Your thought on what the Prime Minister just had to say? Well, I mean, look, we're, we're reaching a situation now where it's becoming a bit more dire and a bit more critical, so we have to put a lot of pieces into play. That's what we saw yesterday when the decision was made to you know, limit international travel with the exception of uh, U.S., Mexico, and and the Caribbean. You know, and now, unfortunately, economic measures are a part of it, too, and it's something that we have to be aware of because individuals will suffer with possible job loss. Some businesses will suffer and some will close. There just have to be a lot of things that have to be put into play right now, and this is only the start of it, you know. If this continues to last for an extended period of time, and I think it's fair to say that it will, because we know that for sure a vaccine will not be found for, as may most scientists in the health community have said, somewhere between 12 to 18 months, even with what we're doing in terms of self-isolation, social distancing, and whatnot, there's a lot of things that our governments are going to have to do. And, you know, Ontario, as you may have announced, has just reported the first death from coronavirus, mm-hmm. which means that it has now come outside of British Columbia. The four previous deaths, of which three were announced yesterday, were all within British Columbia, within the same community. So, unfortunately, it's starting to spread. 
Uh, we heard uh, the Premier of Ontario this morning declare a state of emergency here, uh, but this, and the Prime Minister uh, agreeing with that. Should we be doing more from a federal standpoint on this? Uh, should he be doing the same? What new info do we have today from the Prime Minister? Well, you know, again, it's gradual. I don't think we've obviously reached a position of, say, lockdown or anything of that nature, yeah. because the virus is, the coronavirus is not spreading at the same level as it is as we've seen in countries like Italy and Spain, and previously before that, China and Iran. I mean, naturally, if it does occur in this country, and our country is relatively small in the grand scheme of things, and we hope that it doesn't come to that point, then yes, obviously different measures have to be done and performed and proposed. Um, the federal government's response overall, I mean, I'd rather take it from an overall piece rather than just today because it's really a very large puzzle, has been adequate. It's not been perfect, but it's been adequate. You know, it took us far too long, I believe, to, you know, limit international travel. That was something that other countries, including the United States, made an earlier move on, and I think it was the right thing to do. But fortunately, the number of cases of coronavirus that we have, or active cases, is relatively low. I think we rank about 21st or 22nd in the world right now. You know, naturally it could grow, but as for right now, that should at least give us some small amounts of comfort, if nothing else. And we have to continue to hope that our public health agency federally, that the federal government and other health agencies both provincially in Ontario, around our country, and around the world, continue to work together to find a vaccine, to find a cure. So will the federal government be more involved? Yes. You know, are the measures being put in place the right ones? As of right now, yes, they are. Should some of them have been done earlier? Absolutely. But at least they're moving on it now. Uh, do you think, uh, you know, as far as controlling the nation and, and each indiv- individual province, it's good the way each province is kind of doing its own thing? Again, obviously, certain departments, health, et cetera, are, are provincially regulated, uh, not from a, from a federal standpoint. But have we sent a message that we want you all to do this and we'd, we'd really hope that you did that? You know, I, I mean, has that message been sent? Is this, I mean, slowly we're, st- we're starting to see as the need arises, as in increase this, but should we be just saying, hey, you know what, that's it, all the province of schools should be closed, all this should be done, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da? Well, look, I mean, every province is going to handle it differently. You know, we do have um, we do have a balance. You know, Section 91-92 of our Constitution obviously mandates certain principles, and the provinces have control over their own individual health care facilities, which means that Ontario will handle things differently than Quebec has done, and Quebec actually moved a little bit faster than we did on certain things, or Alberta and Saskatchewan, where the numbers of active cases of coronavirus are relatively low, especially in Saskatchewan, which is is sort of hitting similar numbers that we've seen to Atlantic Canada, so naturally they'll handle things differently. I know some people have, have said or suggested that there should be a national strategy in place where the federal government runs everything, but Ultimately, in the end, I believe that the provincial governments obviously understand their provinces far better. So everybody's on the same page in the end. I think in the end, ultimately, we all will reach that same point. Yeah. It, it just may be done at different periods of time, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Because, right. look, let's use the easiest example. Saskatchewan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, has one active case of coronavirus as of right now. We have, you know, we have close to 200-plus in Ontario. Why would Saskatchewan want to operate the same way that Ontario is operating? But they know, following Ontario's lead and Quebec before them, they see certain things that are put into play, you know, including, for example, the state of emergency that Ontario Premier Doug Ford announced today. And if it gets to that point in Saskatchewan, and undoubtedly it will, based on the spread of the coronavirus, then yes, I think they'll actually have to follow suit. But do they have to do it right now? Some would argue as a preventative measure, it's not a bad thing to do. But I can understand them looking at the situation in Canada and around the world and saying to themselves, yes, we're starting the, you know, we're starting the process of social distancing, encouraging people obviously to you know, not have, get involved in large gatherings, you know, stay within your home or self-isolate for 14 days, wash your hands thoroughly, etc., but we don't necessarily have to go the route of Ontario quite yet. So from that standpoint, I can understand why each individual province is looking at the issue differently, 
But yes, in the end, ultimately, they'll all reach point zero, whatever point zero may be. As we mentioned earlier this morning, just before the Prime Minister spoke, uh, Premier Doug Ford spoke and declared a state of emergency in Ontario. What does right. that mean? What does that mean to the average person? Well, it means that life is very different in this province. I think that's the easiest point. Uh, obviously, a lot of restaurants and various other things have been closed other than delivery service going in or taking out. Um, you know, we've seen movie theaters closed down. Obviously, over the period, last period of time, sports leagues, pro sports leagues, virtually have all shut down now, with actually <laughs> Vince McMahon and WrestleMania 36 being the last holdout, but now that's all been rearranged. Thank so, goodness. Well, I, you know, I understand his point. I know, you know, he had actually already shut down the XFL, his football yeah. league. I was surprised he was holding on, but I guess if you, I mean, this is a completely different topic, but if you study anything about this man and sort of his philosophy of moving forward on events, I can sort of understand why he was the last holdout. But look, he's done the right thing. He's put it into his performance center. There won't be a crowd other than essential staff. That's fine. But getting back to Canada, Look, I mean, or at least to Ontario, the state of emergency, it changes everything. You know, obviously businesses are going to at least shut down their office spaces for periods of time. And, and, and the more people who can work from home, the better. And the self-isolation as well is obviously going to be heavily encouraged, even not in a state of emergency, but for people to sort of think, you know, more carefully about their lives, their families, their communities, and realize that, you know, a little bit of time away from everything isn't going to kill us. Fortunately, a lot of us can work from home. Not all of us. Yeah. Most of us can't. Yep. It'll be balanced out as best we can. Uh, you know, Michael, here we are, day two, into a three-week theoretical March break. Started as a three-week March break and has turned right. into what we see. Where do you see us halfway through this at the week-and-a-half yeah. point? And this is the big problem as well. It's, I'm glad you actually brought that up because I hadn't in the previous um, schools are going to be another big issue as well. I mean, we know that pr- public schools are closed until April 6th, theoretically. Private schools have done the same thing, theoretically. But based on what we're seeing with March break, and as you said, this is only day two and things are starting up, at least in this province, the way they have been today, um, it's quite possible that our children are going to be home from school much longer than we thought. You know, maybe things will settle down. We go back by April 6th. I don't think so at this rate. And that's not being nervous. It's not being fearful. It's just being realistic because I think the world, unfortunately, is changing and everything in the state of our province is changing. But, yeah, I mean, day two of the March break, a lot of parents are sort of joking about it on social media, saying, that you know, day one down. I saw one person with a calendar crossing it out. (laughs) They better get a few calendars because this is going to be a long process, or at least, you know, make sure that a few pages are clear. But look, we'll do the best that we can, you know. I know it sort of sounds like a kumbaya moment, but this is the way that a larger community operates. It's not something that ideologically, for example, I necessarily believe in, but it's something that we have to do for the time being because... If we don't work together, if we don't, you know, if countries don't work together, if provinces don't work together, if individuals and families don't work together to ensure that their community is safe, clean, and healthy, well, that's going to affect us all. So in the end, ultimately, you know, the world will eventually, at some point, get past this. You know, the coronavirus will not be with us forever, much the same way that the Spanish flu or the influenza epidemic wasn't with us forever. It was there from uh, 1918 to 1920. And unfortunately, most people living today don't remember it because they weren't here or they're just not knowledgeable about it. The Uh, coronavirus will eventually pass too. But for the period of time it's with us, be it a year, two years, and hopefully not much more, we have to work together to ensure that this thing is conquered. Uh, last question, only got a few seconds left. What about, uh, the Prime Minister was alluding, alluding to the House of Commons getting back together, having an emergency session to pass what ne- is needed to be, uh, to, to keep the protocol, the process going. What is involved yeah. in that? What will we see there? Well, I think it has to be done, even if they just sit for a very short period of time. You know, the House can rise and sit very quickly if necessary. That's just a, that's a procedural maneuver, and it's very easy to do. But yes, I mean, if it's necessary, I don't dispute that, and I think that they probably should go back, pass certain things into play, or at least get certain templates set up so that if it has to move forward, 
maybe you can do a vote a little bit differently than necessarily just sitting there. You know, there there are ways to handle issues. But, yeah, I think it's the right thing to do. And um, quite frankly, I think that all legislatures, unless you're living in a country that's in a state of lockdown, which Canada is not, they should be getting together and passing important legislation that is beneficial to society. So, no, I have no issue with it. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's been situations happening around the world and uh, following suit and and pretty much the way we're seeing or what we're seeing in North America, uh, the EU is shutting down their external borders as France and Germany tighten restrictions to control COVID-19. To talk more about all of this, Crystal Gamansing is with us, Europe, uh, Europe Bureau Chief, Global News, and on the line now. Crystal, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, not a problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, open borders, obviously, um, uh, just a fundamental of the European Union. Tell us what's happening and how they are restricting movement through the EU. There's a lot going on, just like everywhere else in the world, and it, it is really changing by the day. So we have the uh, the president of the European Union Commission yesterday announcing that uh, the member states had talked about this and, and they were going to put it into effect. All international uh, visitors to the EU will be banned. But we've also seen individual countries shutting down borders or reestablishing land borders. Today we're seeing uh, big lineups of um, uh, tractor trailers and different delivery vehicles sitting on the border between Germany and Poland. We know that France is in a 15-day shutdown. We know that Spain is also in that situation where they're trying to restrict the movements of individuals. Italy continues to be in a nationwide lockdown. Um, and here in the UK, they have uh, requested, I'm using the word requested because it's not a ban at this point, they've requested that people stay home, that they work from home, that they not visit uh, shops or pubs or bars or restaurants, um, and really just restrict their overall movements. Um, a little bit of a mixed reaction here in London to that fact. We were out at uh, uh, Piccadilly a little earlier today, hugely popular square. It would normally be Packed, um, not as busy. The roads not as busy. Most buses are are virtually empty. Uh, however, people still out and about. People still visiting. Spoke with a couple of young people from Paris, actually, who were just you know touring about. And I said, you know, there's a complete lockdown in Paris right now. And they're like, yeah, but we're here and it's nice, so we're mm. hanging out. Uh, Another Canadian couple uh, trying to get home to Vancouver. They have to fly through Toronto first. We're really just worried. They had a couple of flights that were being moved and cancelled. And so they're really, um, fingers crossed, that they'll be able to, to make it back. So a really interesting um, take on, on the recommendations. Um, but, you know, we did see this even going back to other locations in, in Europe. You know, Italy, it wasn't too long ago, maybe not even two weeks, that, you know, we saw people walking around uh, Venice and Rome saying, oh, it'll be fine. I, I, I don't want to go inside. Uh, has the messaging been consistent across the EU on what everyone is doing? There's been some uh, criticism of that here in Canada and I guess in the United States as well, uh, where provinces are acting and uh, doing their own thing that they need to do locally. And perhaps some are suggesting a more consistent national kind of approach to this. What about how the EU is handling all of this and how, uh, you know, do we have a patchwork of different uh, templates to help make this work? Do we need something more consistent? Yeah, it really hasn't been consistent up until this point, and I think that's why yesterday we saw the uh, president of the European Union Commission come out and say, listen, the, the member states have all talked, this is what we're doing moving forward. But then we also heard from the World Health Organization, uh, who's been saying all along, you know, we have our overarching advice, but it's up to individual countries and governments to implement these measures, how they see fit in different locations. Um, you know, the UK, for example, we see schools closed all over. Um, that is not happening, at least at this moment, um, in the UK. So there, it, it is a patchwork. It is very different. Um, and, and again, it, it comes down to how individual governments are interpreting the regulations, the recommendations, and, and the science. How concerned is the rest of the EU, considering you know how, how tight everybody is and whether borders are open or closed, that this is going to spread, considering what Italy has gone through? 
I think Italy is the example that everyone is looking at. Just a few minutes ago, Boris Johnson in his daily update, these just started this week that he was going to be addressing the public every day, talked about Italy saying, uh, you know, we don't have to look very far to just see how distraught and how overwhelmed the medical system could be. And he said it's it's not the system in Italy that is the problem. It is the virus. Uh, here in the UK, we saw just a day-to-day increase, more than 400 cases. It went from, um, you know, 1,543 to 1950. We are seeing the, the, the death rate increase in the UK. We were told that we are at the sort of the rapid growth phase of this. We heard the mayor of London come out and say, listen, we really have to pay attention. We, we know that it's going to be serious. Uh, the NHS here has uh, a, made a move to free up some hospital beds. Um, it has suspended um, non-urgent surgeries as of April 15th as a, as a move to try to free up intensive care beds because that is going to be the issue. It's going to be, will there be beds available for those who do require um, serious medical interventions? What is, and this is my last question, I know you got to run, uh, what are uh, the challenges for the UK moving forward? Have they reacted uh, diligently compared to some of the other countries. You know, it's, it's a really hard one to compare uh, individual countries because everyone's um, challenges are a yeah. little bit different when it comes down to, um, you know, the novel coronavirus and how it impacts. If we start by going back to China and looking at that situation, it kind of took everyone off guard. And, and when we found out about it, it was very much in the, the peak, the most serious part of the outbreak. And now it's been a slow trickle down effect to how how severe do we um, restrict movements? How fast do we go? And that's one thing we've heard from the UK government is, you know, we don't want to go full to the wall yet because then there is an extended period of time that people will have to live under these measures and you don't want to do it too soon. And then people say, well, I'm bored. I don't want to do this. I can't do this anymore. You know, it's been it's been months since I've been allowed to go outside. So it, timing, we hear a lot about that. Uh, timing is really key. And, you know, we heard from the WHO, you don't really know if you did a good job until much, much later. Yeah, pub life there. I mean, big part of the social network fabric there. How is that coping with all of this? Well, there's a lot of discussion about that today. Um, you know, what's going to happen? Again, they didn't shut them down. It wasn't a mandated everyone close your shop. It was recommended that people don't go to the pub. Um, so a lot of confusion, people saying, well, you know, it's a part of life. Sure, I'll work from home, but I'm still going to go out and enjoy a, a, a drink with friends. And then you also had small pub owners and associations saying, this is going to cripple us. Like, how, how are we supposed to deal with this? I still have to staff because I'm not supposed to shut down. Um, and there was concerns about insurance. Today, we did hear from Boris Johnson's government saying, listen, how we organize this, if you are able to claim um, in insurance because of a pandemic, you should be fine with our language. If not, there were um, a lot of measures just moments ago announced economic relief, um, specifically looking at small businesses, hospitality leave retail industry. Um, for example, they will not pay any business taxes um, for 12 months, more than uh, roughly 330 billion pounds mm. of, um, of a stimulus package between um, guaranteed loans and, and, and grants put together to help small, medium and large business. And we did hear from uh, individuals in, in finance saying, listen, we're also going to look at the airline and airports to see what sort of supports there. You know, we did hear from Boris Johnson saying, you know, we have to act like it's wartime measures and support at all costs. So, you know, we will be hearing and seeing more and more over the coming days because at the end of it, this this you have to continue to support the economy. And if you want people to stay home and not spread the virus, you know, you have to have mm. one with the other. Crystal Gamansing has been with us, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News, speaking to us from the UK. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Crystal, thank you so much for the time. Stay safe. Thank you so much. Take care. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Um, all right. Uh, yesterday during Trudeau's announcement, he said the borders would be closed to non-permanent residents, not to American citizens. Uh, we're certainly certain. We just talked to our uh, reporter in in the UK, talking about the UK shutting borders down there. Let's bring in Phil Gursky to talk about all this. President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He is with us now. Phil, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. How important is it for us to remain calm during issues, times like this? 100% calm. I liked your copacetic introduction to our talk today. There you go. Uh, you know, people are afraid. People are, they don't know what's going on. There, there are a lot of unknowns here. It's changing rapidly, as you're well aware. You know, those who have been criticized, critical of the government, I, well, yeah, I get that. But, you know, facts are changing on a daily basis and the government's having a hard time keeping up on it. I do think we have to keep calm. And I, and I liked your point. You know, this is serious. This is a serious illness, although most of us won't get it seriously. But this is not a war. This is not uh, Ebola where you have a much higher lethality rate. I think we all have to basically take a deep breath. It's inconvenient. You know, you're not going to theater. You're not going to the bars. You're not going to hockey games. But it could be a lot worse. And let's thank our blessings for that. Isn't that the case? And I've often said, you know, uh, can you imagine if this was a deadly virus, we'd be in big trouble. And perhaps this is a lesson for all of us in case something like that does one day happen. I agree. And I, I sincerely hope that going forward, governments will not cut healthcare and laboratories and researchers looking because you're right. The, the big one will come one day, one that's very, very with a much higher uh, rate of lethality. And I think that Canadians want the best practices possible. And I'm hoping we use this as a lesson to be learned. We dodged a bolt this time, you know, in a sense. So let's hope that all governments, municipal, provincial, and federal, take this seriously and make sure that when the next one comes, we'll be a bit better prepared and, and be better prepared to act more quickly. Many are saying the reason that Canada is as Ontario, as prepared as it is, is because of SARS. So here's hoping we learn the same lessons after this is all over moving forward. Uh, the Premier uh, in Ontario declares a state of emergency. Uh, Prime Minister obviously has closed the borders uh, to non-Canadian citizens. Uh, with an exemption of those for the United States. Many, and, and, and you touched on this earlier, I mean, this is so fluid. We certainly can't hold our governments to something they said even a day ago because it changes that quickly. Uh, but many are asking why now. Uh, explain perhaps how this process works and perhaps why not earlier. You know, well, those are really good questions, and I, I don't know that I have really good answers. But I, as I said, I think the governments were trying to take the prudent steps when they did they didn't want to be seen to be overreacting. And already you're, I mean, I'm hearing in my environment, people saying this is, this is, you know, this is overblown. This is not that serious. So I think the government didn't want to come out to see, to be seen as too fearful or in a panic mode. And this is why they're, the measures they've taken have been sort of step by step. And as we said, the facts are changing, um, you know, a, a, as we speak. As for the travel ban, you know, if we had, I guess if we had implemented one two months ago, we wouldn't be where we are because this virus did start in a particular place of the world and Mm -hmm. had no one been allowed to leave that place of the world and come to Canada, we wouldn't be there. But, I mean, hindsight is 20-20 in that sense. But to me, um, in terms of a travel ban, and I wrote a piece on this actually in this morning's Ottawa Citizen, that horse has left the barn. The COVID virus is here. It's among us, and it's now being spread within the community, not necessarily tied to those who've recently traveled. So I guess on the one hand, if you close the borders, you don't invite anybody else who may be carrying it, but you don't eliminate the threat because, as I said, it's already well established in our communities. So a bit of a double-edged coin or a two-sided coin, I think, in that respect. When we talk about China lately or of late before all of this, it was about 5G. It was about the two Michaels. It was about security, whether we can trust moving forward uh, with a communist country that is now so interwoven into our economy. How does this change our perception of them? Well, I think it makes it a lot worse. And, you know, there have been a lot of pieces out lately about how, you know, we in Canada maybe were a little too trustful of the Chinese. And I won't get into the whole economic thing, Scott, you know, about, you know, supply chains and how manufacturing yeah. is in China and how it's all interconnected. But I think a lot of people are seeing, and, and about time, that China really isn't our friend on many levels. You talk about, you know, what's happening in Xinjiang problems with the Uyghurs. You talk about a whole bunch of things that China's up to. Uh, China is a dictatorship for all intents and purposes. They don't have the same values that we do. We don't have the same liberty boxes that we do. And I'm not saying to ignore them. You can't ignore, you know, what is it, one-fifth no. of the planet? You can't do that. But you can certainly, you know, run your international relations and run your contacts in a way that recognizes that these guys are very different from us on many levels. 
and let's not just throw them all aside and embrace them because of economics or whatever. So I do think that, you know, rightly or wrongly, the fact that the COVID-19 began in Wuhan province, began in China before it spread internationally, I think that will lead a lot of people to, to, to look more negatively on China, which, in, you know, I'm not trying to get into xenophobia here or, you know, you know. And it's very important that we don't do that, that we're not talking about Chinese Canadians or, or those no. that are here. We are talking about the government of China. Absolutely. I, and that's an important point to make. But I still think at the same time, people, maybe the rose colored glasses have come off a little bit in that we should look at China as, as I said, not necessarily our friend, an international player that we, that we have to deal with at some level. But let's not embrace them. I guess we're not embracing anybody right now with the COVID-19 virus, but let's keep our distance and let's have a, 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 a managed, well-managed international relationship that takes into account that they do things that are, that are fundamentally against our, our ethics and our ways of doing things. Let's not go into this blindly as we have been, I would argue, for the past 15 years. What do you think China will, how do you think China is going to react to this once it all settles down and sells the rest of the world that, hey, it's all fine? Well, they're already doing that, right? They're already saying we have the model. You know, we, we, we locked down 60 million people and look, no more COVID. So it's almost as if if you're a draconian and you suspend human rights and human liberties, this is the way you defeat diseases. And you're seeing some reflection of that in the West as well. That maybe we need to take the same steps that China did. We don't know what actually happened in China, Scott. We don't know yeah. if, the, if the facts are correct. We do know the Chinese government invents things. We know the Chinese government will falsify statistics. So it's really hard to look at whether or not what they did is what they actually did and whether it's successful because they're not transparent. Like, like we are here in the Western world. So we've got to take Chinese claims with a, with, a, with a box of salt, I would argue. But it really makes us you know, question things like the One Belt, One Road initiative, where they're offering really cheap loans to countries to build infrastructure, and they're basically taking over the infrastructure when they can't pay the loans back. Yeah. I, I think it's a reality check for all of us. But China's going to be aggressive. They're going to want to sell their model. We, you know, we're, we're the people that solve this. And you can't, live with, you can't live with those anymore. We're part of the international system. Yeah. So be, rare, be very wary of what China's messages are going to be giving in, in, in the weeks and months to follow. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, we certainly saw earlier on in the week, uh, not so much now, it seems that things have calmed down a little bit. But people hoarding stuff like uh, hand sanitizer and toilet paper and such, despite, you know, having uh, the head of toilet paper companies come on and say, we got lots, just relax. You know, we don't, uh, you know, you don't want to raid the food chain. Everything will be fine. Um, uh, the supply chain, rather. Uh, how is it affecting all of that in food? Does it? Will it? Let's bring in Mike Von Massau, uh, uh, OAC Chair in the Food System Leadership Associate Professor of Food Agriculture and Resources Economics, Resource Economics, University of Guelph. And I think I butchered Mike's name. Mike is with us now. Mike, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. We've certainly heard lots uh, about people shopping and and, uh, grocery stores being packed, people hoarding products and stuff. How does this affect the food chain? Do we have anything to be concerned about in that regard? Well, I I would say our food system and our food value chain is resilient and uh, robust. And really, what, what happens when we do this sort of panic buying is we catch the system by surprise. You know, we have regular systems that forecast how much we demand, and when that gets accelerated, we see some short-term shortages. That was exacerbated by the fact that people saw empty shelves and said, oh, God, we're running out, and then as soon as there was more, they kept, kept buying and buying. Uh, so the, the, the fact that we have seen some shortages has been just a result of, of the panic buying and not because some fundamental or underlying issue with our, with our food supply chain. We, uh, we've seen, uh, as I heard you say earlier, uh, some, uh, some return to normalcy. Uh, I expect we may still see uh, the odd store here and there be short of one or two products here or there, but, but I think after we saw that blip, uh, that there's not a fundamental decline in production there's not a fundamental shortage anywhere uh, we just caught we, we we shocked the system and the system is recovering um are you surprised that what we saw people hoard toilet paper hand sanitizer bottled water it's not did they did it affect food at all did people start buying mass uh, quantities of we, food I, I think those were the big ones that we heard about uh those ones are also probably ones that are uh that are ex- Expected to be more predictable demand, and so uh, that are, are almost manufactured to demand, and so they were the ones who fell short. 
Uh, I think we also saw some people buy canned foods and frozen foods and things like that. We didn't see as much shortage of those products. Um, I was, I mean, hand sanitizer probably wasn't that surprising, although good soap and water wash is, yeah. is as good uh, if you're at home. Uh, toilet paper, frankly, surprised me a little bit. Uh, bottled water... Uh, probably two, but I'm often surprised at how much bottled water we drink as Canadians mm. uh, when we have a safe and abundant source uh, at our taps. So, uh, yeah, it, it, I think, again, the ones that got the high-profile news were the ones that, that, that had an accelerated demand for them anyway, and those are very specific products. There were probably always alternatives when people were looking to buy extra food. Hmm. Uh, how are you concerned that this virus and, and, and the process that, that uh, the province and, and the country is undergoing uh, as a result of this, do you, do, will that challenge the food chain? Do you, do you, what sort of challenges do you expect moving forward on this? Uh, frankly, uh, I don't expect a, a lot of challenge. I know our farmers, like our dairy farmers and others are still working hard every day getting products to the market. We're still processing food. Uh, what will be interesting is if the U.S. government or the Canadian government closes the U.S. border, we get a significant volume, particularly of fresh products at this time of year, from the U.S., uh, and so if there were disruptions at the border, we might see uh, a change in the, in the types of products that we, have, that we see available in our grocery stores, but we won't be short of food. So might we, uh, might we see if the border closes or if it becomes more difficult to get across the border, might we see uh, broccoli or something uh, become uh, a little less common, perhaps, only if the border closes, uh, but there will still be lots of products available for us to uh, for, for us to eat, and that hasn't happened yet. I think one of the reasons we heard the federal government say that we're working hard at keeping this border open is to sustain the sort of supply chains that go both ways between Canada and the U.S. and and to min- minimize the disruption. That's why I think the the American citizen exemption was uh was put in for for food to travel but uh, uh for food and and other in and other sort of manufacturing products to to travel both ways so uh if if the border doesn't close uh, i don't see there being any problem with food supply and if the border does close i don't see there being any problem with food supply i think hmm. there might just be a couple of things that we we don't get that we're maybe used to getting but we won't run out of food. Mike, what if somebody tests positive in a food production plant, like a large bakery or a a packing plant or something of that nature? How will that change things? Well, uh, the the one thing to remember is that that we should be doing smart things uh, anyway. Uh, So if someone tested positive in a large plant, they would probably ask that person to self-isolate. They would then also probably ask the people in those plants to self-isolate, and uh, in in that circumstance, uh, they would they would probably do the people who were in immediate contact with them. But there is a depending on the plant uh, and the degree of, of industrialization, there aren't there aren't sort of large groups or clusters of people working in close proximity in many of them, uh, and so as long as the plant could continue to run. Uh, there, there shouldn't, there shouldn't be an issue, and I expect that, like everyone, they're taking all of the regular precautions relative to, uh, relative to hand cleaning and social distancing that that they can do. As far as food safety, the virus doesn't. It's my understanding the virus doesn't live for long periods of time, uh, and so if someone sneezed on a, an avocado in right. California, by the time it got to your uh, to your kitchen, it would be fine. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of other things that we are aware of relative to food safety, washing fresh fruits and vegetables, all of those things, not so much for COVID-19, but for generally yeah. uh, food safety, cooking meat sufficiently, I, I think to, to, to a large degree, uh, uh, 
we, we don't have anything to worry about. Yeah, there's nothing that says anything about how this is related to the food chain or transmits via the food chain or any of that or can no, be contaminated. No, 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 this is, it's a human-to-human you know, issue. And, and, and I've had the question several times, well, they're closing restaurants. Does that mean it's a food issue? No, they're closing restaurants uh, and allowing them to yeah. continue pickup or delivery uh, because the risk in a restaurant is the person sitting at the table next to you, yeah. not not the food that's on the plate in front of you. So uh, it is still completely safe to order for takeout or delivery, uh, completely safe to buy whatever we buy in the, in the regular grocery store. Uh, the issue isn't food transmission. The issue is getting large groups of people together. Any advice for those that are out and about and uh, concerned about any of this from a food perspective? Uh, stay calm and carry on. Uh, I, I can tell you at our house, we are not buying food ahead. Uh, we are buying food as we need it. We didn't buy extra toilet paper, hmm. and we, uh, we've we been able to buy more toilet paper since. Uh, we, uh, we don't use a lot of hand sanitizer at our house because we have lots of soap and wash our hands. Uh, and and I think that uh, that the... We're seeing actions take place to minimize the risk of transmission of COVID-19 and that I have very little concern for uh, the robustness or resilience of our food system and that we can continue to put safe, healthy food on our tables. Mike Van, uh, Mike Von Massau has been with us, OAC Chair in the Food System Leadership, Associate Professor of Food Agriculture and Research Economics, University of Guelph. Uh, Mike saying, don't worry about the food system, everything is safe. Mike, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.